This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Good morning, church. My name is Chad. I am a local theology student at TEDS. And uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 121. That's Psalm 121. Uh, we will be in verses 1 through 8 today. If you do not have your Bible, uh, there is a hardback Bible uh, in the pew in front of you. Uh, to tell you a bit about myself, I grew up in the beautiful state of Southern California, uh, only 10 minutes away from Disneyland and 30 minutes from the beach. In spring of 2015, I discovered the joy of knowing God personally. Uh, and uh, shortly thereafter, I got involved in leading student ministry and realized there's nothing I'd rather do than spend time with God and his people. When I made this discovery, I, I decided to get my BA at, uh, in, in church ministry at Hope International University in California and decided to further my education with my master's here at TED's, which brings me here today at Our Savior. But that's enough about me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to read your word and to seek out a clearer understanding of your promises. We pray that as each of us discern the meaning of this psalm, you would guide the resolution of our thoughts. We pray this in your name. Amen. Psalm 121 is a beautiful song about the Lord who helps and keeps his people. It is a psalm of ascent, often sung as the people of Israel would ascend the hill of Jerusalem for the annual festivals. This psalm has been deeply cherished throughout the ages. One commentator even notes that the second line of verse 2 is reflected in the Apostles' Creed that we read through earlier. It is a simple psalm, but the application is endless. In some ways, the psalm of uh, the craft of Psalm 121 is reminiscent of what St. Augustine said about the book of John. It is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child not to drown. Let's read it. Psalm 121, verses 1 through 8. A song of ascent. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sword shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Throughout this chapter, the psalmist uses God's personal name five times in eight verses. The psalmist does not use God's title as we normally would. God's personal name is often expressed as Lord in all capital letters. Whenever God's personal name is used, it is used with extreme care. It is often thought too holy to speak. But the psalmist uses God's personal name to convey a sense of exclusive intimacy. God's name is personal in that uh, God's personal name is exclusive in that he is the only one who is truly able to keep us. He is the only true source of help. 
God's personal name is intimate in that it is a relational name, not merely a distant formal title. The psalm starts with the pronouncement, I lift my eyes to the hills. The imagery here doesn't fully resonate with us today. It's, a re- it's an allusion to what scholars call theophany. In the Old Testament, mountains, hills, and high places are settings in which God, God's power is revealed. But these are also settings where ancient mystics would seek out other spiritual power. So the psalmist is looking to this hill with connotations of God's powerful presence, and he asks, from where does my help come? It is not necessarily a rhetorical question. At this point, I find myself identifying with the author. I'm not sure how to cut my hair. Last week, I didn't have time to change my oil, and next week, I'm going to need my professor's help navigating a particular doctrine. I didn't even get here on my own. I used a car to help me get here faster. So as I look at my week, I'm always asking for help. But then I ask myself, who gives me life? Who makes me breathe? Causes me to wake every morning? How is it that my soul is sustained daily? How is it that I can face the troubles of a day and yet still press on with hope and confidence? The psalmist says, the Lord, uh, my help comes from the Lord. The same God who made the heavens and the earth is my helper. Not only this, but today we can look back at God's safeguard of Noah, Abraham, Moses, Samuel, David, Jonah, Mary, Peter, Paul, John, the early church reformation, and various revivals. All of these saw God's supernatural power in an outward manifestation in an outward manifestation. But in this passage, the psalmist only spends half a verse talking about it. He says, who keeps the heavens and the earth, and that's it. The psalmist doesn't seem to be primarily concerned with outward realities after this. I spent much more time than I'd like to admit trying to figure this out. What was the circumstances prompted that prompted this psalm? Was the psalmist returning from a battle? Was there a particular enemy pursuing him? We know what the psalm promises, how to interpret it, and even how it was used by the Israelites. But there is little material on the immediate uh, circumstances of the psalmist. Then, Thursday night, I took a step back. I looked at the text as a whole and realized the reason I wasn't able to find evidence of external circumstances is because all the promises in this passage indicate a resolution of an inward concern. I think that the the reason the psalmist mentions God's creative power is that he is establishing the point that God is fully able to help us in our deepest needs, specifically the needs of our souls. God keeps your soul in life and death, in trouble and peace, in little and abundance. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. This promise is assured by the ability of the Creator. So when we see the tall orders of passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, we can strive with the assurance that the same person who created the universe is committed to helping us. In this passage, the psalmist uses the verb keep to convey God's commitment to his people. Verse 3, he says, 
he who keeps Israel will not slumber. Verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. Again in verse 7, he will keep your life. In verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God is absolutely committed to our souls. How do we know? Because God is glorified in his work to save us, and he is committed to, our glory, uh, to his glory. Growing up, I never really uh, got into Star Trek. I was much more of a Star Wars guy. But a few weeks ago, I noticed Paramount was streaming a refresh of Star Trek, and I decided uh, to watch a few episodes. I haven't watched too much, but one of the things that I like about heroic stories is the hero gets the glory. Captain Kirk is not God, but in some ways these stories image who God is. When Captain Kirk saves his crew, he gets glory. His team trusts him. Relationships are kindled, and he's praised by others. This is one of the key distinctions between Christianity and any other major religion. It is not about us being uh, about us saving ourselves and being congratulated by God. It is not about us earning favor with God. That idea would be completely contrary to everything else we do in life. For example, last week someone brought me dessert. I did not get glory from being brought dessert. I thanked the person for bringing the dessert over. To quote John Piper, the giver got the glory. Christianity is consistent with every other area of life. We get God's help and God gets the glory, always. So when we talk about being kept by God, we are not earning our keep. But God has designed us to love those who help uh, keep and protect us. And because God is glorified in this, he is infinitely committed to helping, keeping, and protecting his people. Let's circle back to verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I've stayed up for 24 hours only three times in my life. In seventh grade, I was at my friend's house playing video games. In undergrad, I was finishing a paper. But the longest I stayed up was just over 48 hours. In high school, I started by pulling a all-nighter with friends. And uh, that just happened to fall on the the night before an all-nighter at church. is a humbling experience to get that far, only to fall asleep without even realizing it. As an adult, I also find it humbling that no matter how many tasks I have to complete, I have two-thirds of a day to complete it. I may need to work, write papers, go grocery shopping, meet with professors, but the reality is I have between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. to complete everything that I need to do accepting that my efforts are limited beyond that. Whether or not, uh, whether we want to or not, we are all constrained by our basic need to help. But unlike our need for help, God never sleeps. God is helping us. He is keeping us all the time. Whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are honoring him or not, whether we realize it or not, he does not cease. He does not cease. God is always helping us. God is always keeping us. 
But the psalmist prefaces the point by saying, behold, in other words, look, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The psalmist introduced this song by saying, I lift my eyes to the hills. And now he's telling the reader, look to the keeper. There's a connection between eyes and looking. Earlier, I mentioned these hills are symbolic of places where God's glory or another mystical power was often sought. By telling the author to look to the one who keeps Israel, he is also saying he is the only true help. These other gods cannot keep you, and they will not help you. Today, it's a bit harder to find those who intentionally seek out the help of demons or carved idols. As an American culture, we're a bit too postmodern for that. But one of the great things about TEDS is diversity. We have almost 60 countries represented at our school. And throughout my time here, I've heard from more than a couple missionaries about the ways in which some unreached people still seek out other forms of spiritual help. But in the States, it's not that we don't struggle with this, it's just more that it takes a different shape and it's much more subtle. If one represents, if one hill represents God and the other hill rep- represents some other form of spiritual help, look to he who keeps Israel. Fix your eyes there. He is the only one who is truly able to help you and he is truly able to keep you. He never sleeps. Verse five and six. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Just as in verses, as verses three and four describe the frequency of God's help, verses five and six describe the occasion for God's help. The ancient Israelites were not unaware of the dangers of the desert. Part of their heritage was wandering in the desert for 40 years. The heat of the sun was not the pleasant warmth we know it to be. The sun was a cause of dehydration, heat stroke, and death. As for the moon, one scholar says, it was believed that the moon's rays were dangerous, causing epilepsy and other diseases. A reflection of this belief is seen in the word lunacy. It comes from the Latin word moon, which means luna. So what is the psalmist saying? That we won't get sunburns, that we won't get sick, that we can pick up serpents with our hands and we won't get hurt? No. He's saying that God will be your helper, that he will be your keeper when these things come. When the sun burns, when the serpent bites, when your body falls ill, God will keep you. He will not abandon you in any of your trials. As I was preparing for today, I was reminded of the story of Job. To briefly summarize, Job is a servant of God, and he loses everything. He loses his possessions. He loses his health. His children die, and his wife tells him to curse God and die. But God does not abandon Job. He reminds Job of who he is. He keeps Job's soul and strengthens his faith, not because of who Job is, but because of who God is. In good times and in bad times, he will hold you fast. So day or night, in every occasion, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What kind of evil does God keep us from? He says, all evil. 
protection from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a life well-armed by the help and presence of God. Psalm 23.4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David expects evil to come. He does not expect to avoid evil, but he knows that God will strengthen him when evil does come. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying here. He will keep your life. You will not be tossed to and fro by the ways of life. But you will find your life, your constant, your very being in him. So when the waves come and life goes sideways, we have an anchor to keep us steady. There's a book I'd like to recommend. It's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. I won't spoil it, but it's an edifying novel on this topic, both for children and for adults. As I look back, even over this last week, there have been a few times I did not feel the steadiness I so desired. Redriving is inconsiderate, uh, but it, and at times mildly irritating. But I'd like to say I do a good job of brushing it off. But if someone's driving dangerously, I find it somewhat selfish. Growing up, my mom and my best friends separately almost died in car crashes. So, at times, that kind of driving still upsets me more than I'd like. Yet, because God works for his glory, the Lord keeps our lives when we find our being in him, and we are steadied by his constant because he is our helper. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. To the ancient Israelite, this simply means as you enter the gates of the city or you leave the gates of the city, wherever you go, the Lord is with you. When I moved here from Southern California, I drove across eight state lines. I saw the Grand Canyon, the Rockies, the Great Plains. I also engaged in new community here in Illinois. Do I miss things about California? California? Certainly. But do any of those external shifts in my life influence the inward reality that God has kept me? Not at all. I know that the Lord will keep me, and I know that he will keep me wherever I go. Last line, verse 8. From this point and forevermore. The psalmist is not implying that God has been keeping Israel before this. He is not suggesting that anything changes at this particular point. It is just his way of saying, throughout all time, the Lord will help you and he will keep you. Verse 8 is the psalmist's final point, his summary, his big idea. The Lord is the one who keeps. He keeps you everywhere you go and everything you do at all time. The Lord is your help. So what do we do when we don't feel God's help? When some of us start to wonder if God is still there, that he's still working, how should we respond to these emotions? Here are a few suggestions. One, open up your Bible. Look at all the people that God has helped in seemingly helpless situations. Two, seek his help in prayer. The Lord is your helper, even when we can't feel it. Three, confide in a fellow believer. Lastly, Look back at the ways God has already saved you and celebrate his commitment that never changes. God is always helping and he is always keeping. 
He doesn't promise wealth. He doesn't promise health. He doesn't promise to change our circumstances. In fact, he promises that things will get much worse. But we as Christians have a greater treasure. We know that we are God's people and that he keeps us. And that one day, Jesus will return and make all things new. That is the horizon we fix our eyes to. Look to the Lord. See him as your helper. In good times and bad times, wherever you are, ask him, what are you calling me to do? And would you help me? There is a world out there that does not know Jesus. For those of us who know and treasure Jesus as our Lord and Savior, let's seek him. Let's seek his help to make him known here at home and wherever we go. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the assurance of Psalm 121. You help us all the time in ways that we often don't realize. We confess that we need your help, and we ask that you would reveal to us the ways we have become self-reliant. Cause us to treasure you as the helper and keeper of life that you are. Thank you for your commitment to helping us as we seek to know you and make you known. You are always working. You are always faithful. In your name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.